One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome along to Second Captains of the Irish Times today. This show is coming at you a little later than usual, but that's a good thing, a very good thing, because it gave me time to nip out of studio and meet Ronan O'Gara. Better again, it wasn't just one of my regular lunch dates with Ronan O'Gara. I actually interviewed him, brought along some recording devices, and we're going to play that out for you on today's show. That's good, that's good, you know, because your, your hilarious Raj own lunch meetup anecdotes are hilarious for us around the office, but... To get to share those yeah. with the general public is, is really great. Better even than O'Gara Murph. Super Bowl US Murph on mm. the show. Live from New York City, Radio Row. Yeah. That's going to be amazing. Uh, it is. Uh, he will be giving us an insight into that particular uh, facet of the Super Bowl week, which is pretty odd. Basically, a, re- a conference room full of radio shows from all over America. They talk <sighs> to the same people, obviously not at the same time. They do talk quite loudly. Yeah, I mean, American radio the American people. sports talk show host yeah. is about the loudest individual. US Murph is easily the, mo- the quietest of all of them in the entire country. Yeah. And, and Brian can certainly talk. I think you're probably not that far wrong there. So that's like also good, but not even the highlight of the show. It gets better, Ken, because today, for the first time since we came to the Irish Times, we're going to have one of our all-time favourite guests, Jerry Eisenberg, on. Jerry Eisenberg? Yeah, an American writer, historian, essentially a living, breathing link to the golden age of American sport in the 1960s. I was reminded of his brilliance when I read a book recently about, you know, the broadcaster Howard Cassell. Mm-hmm. I was reading this in the last couple of weeks. Jerry didn't actually write this, but he was asked by the author to contribute. He was one of the people giving memories and giving some context, and he was by a mile the best of those contributors. He tells one story, which I'm just going to share with you now, to illustrate Cassell's insufferable arrogance. So they're strolling along together, Jerry Eisenberg and Howard Cassell, sometime in the 1960s. Cassell, a massive superstar by this stage. When a guy walks up to Cassell and says, Howard, don't know if you remember me, but I was your squad leader in training in the army. Hmm. According to Eisenberg, Howard gives him that look like he stepped in shit. The guy goes on, it's the first time I've actually seen you since we got out of the army. How, how are you doing? Howard looks at him and says, then this must be a red letter day for you. To this man he hasn't seen for a long time. Eisenberg was so annoyed with Cassell that he said, F you, walked across the street. I read this and just was reminded of how Jerry Eisenberg can spin a yarn. Yeah. And how we're just going to try and ask how him. How he describes the three lads in, uh, in Zaire. Norman Mailer, George Plimpton, Hunter S. Thompson, three celebrity frauds. <laughs> this is how he, that, was a, that was a classic moment. I mean, I don't think Hunter Thompson produced anything of any interest from that fight. Mm. If, if he did, I can't remember ever reading it. I think he kind of just disappeared off into the night. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think he said that they had got upriver. The yeah, three celebrity well, frauds had got upriver. Yeah, which I think, in fairness... Thompson probably did, but Mather wrote a pretty good book out of that, I would have, I would have said. I would have thought. Maybe he was a little bit of a poser as a boxing journalist. Mm. Maybe a little bit, but still, come on. You there have say, been suggestions it was over the years good. that there was a certain amount of fiction involved in Mather's nah, book, but know, I enjoyed what's, it. What's the problem? Sometimes fiction is more truthful, Owen. I didn't realise, Murph, that around the time I was reading that book, you were already thinking way ahead of me, as per usual, mm. and you were locking Jerry Eisenberg down to talk to today about... About Vince Lombardi and about his place in sort of the Super Bowl story because uh, Lombardi was an uh, unbelievably successful coach actually only for eight years in Green Bay with the Green Bay Packers uh, won five NFC championships and also won the first two Super Bowls so Super Bowl 1 Super Bowl 2 both won by Green Bay Packer teams uh, led by Vince Lombardi and he's known as this um, I suppose the, the 
this is the thing that Brian Murphy does all the time, try to link a US sports figure back to oh, someone that we would uh, that we'd be more familiar with. But Alex Ferguson would be a, a very easy comparison to make because unbelievably successful, but also a bit of a crank. Um, unbelievably tough on his players. Uh, it just presented an unbelievably tough exterior to people as well. And was known as a bit of an asshole, really, if, if, if truth be told. Um, Jerry covered uh, Lombardi, covered the Green Bay Packers for years and has a pretty, uh, pretty, he's in a pretty unique position to tell us. He was friends with Lombardi, yeah. while also, uh, we believe, having a number of incidents with him, some yes. press conference rows, this kind of stuff. So we'll get onto that later on. Time now to kick things off with Super Bowl Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Touchdown, Gordon! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Ryan Murphy, how are you enjoying New York City? Oh boy, not for the faint of heart. You better bring your big boy pads when you roll into the uh, the Big Apple, man. I, and we're here all week too. You know, they took us out of our little our little West Coast outpost, our little sleepy little village of San Francisco, and to to, to just charge into the breach of uh, Super Bowl week on Radio Row. And yeah, I'm sure you guys know and have discussed, uh, or maybe you haven't. I don't know. Just the fact that this is the first one ever in New York, so. This is a lot of reaction. We've had, you know, little snow flurries, uh, ear ear snapping cold, but uh, it is no shortage of buzz and excitement. And uh, and uh, so we're we're doing great. I, I will tell you this though, you know, we fly home Friday, and I think it'll be probably a good thing. I think it's probably <laughs> a good thing. Well, Brian, you're a, I believe judging by the phone call we've just made to your hotel there that you're staying in Times Square. So good to see you're you're steering clear of all the touristy areas anyway. I know, man. New Yorkers, I mean, when they hear you're staying at Times Square, they just write you off as an absolute phony, <laughs> an absolute joke. Uh, you don't even exist. But hey, man, uh, what can I do? This is where it's all happening. They have this thing called Super Bowl Boulevard now that they un- uh, opened last night. That, uh, that you know, they, the NFL tries to make it about this sort of like fan experience where the kids can come like throw footballs and people can try to kick field goals and and uh, just this whole outdoor experience thing. But they're trying to do it in New York, and the thing problem is there. You know, there's this thing called the polar vortex that's freezing uh, the mm. entire eastern half of the country. So the NFL experience is more like the teeth chattering experience. Mm. So uh, the, I don't know how well that's working. They actually just tried to take it head on, and one of the attractions is actually a giant like sort of toboggan run where you can kind of like sled down almost like an, uh, uh, kind of like a fake ice hill. So I mean, it's very different from a Super Bowl in New Orleans where it's you walk outside and you can just feel that warm, humid air, and you can reach out and squeeze it, or very different from a Super Bowl in Miami, you know, with the, the club scene and uh, South Beach and all that, all the other places we usually have them. But lately the league has, in the last several years, is, is sort of, quote-unquote, rewarding these teams that build these franchises, that build these stadiums, and say, you build a new stadium, we'll give you a Super Bowl, and, and you know, it's kind of like a little carrot on a stick for these, these owners to get these uh, these big, monstrous, gleaming new temples to luxury suites built. So uh, that's how New York got this, this MetLife Stadium, which isn't that much of a stadium, guys, too. It's, you know, as you guys probably know, about 10, 10 miles south of New York City in New Jersey. And, in fact, the Seahawks and the, uh, and the Broncos are not even in New York City. The media is. We're crawling all over New York City. We're doing Radio Row, but they're practicing down in New Jersey, and they're going to play in New Jersey. Mm. So have you, have you gone to the Statue of Liberty, eaten a hot dog on the street? <laughs> held hands with your co-host, Paulie Mack, at the top of the Empire State Building? And we, yes, we, we're going to as many Broadway shows as we can, <laughs> you know, to clutching our, hand, uh, clutching our playbills to our breasts, yes. Uh, well, this is my first rodeo. I've been in New York many, many, many times, guys, so I've done all the, uh, uh, you know, I, listen, I love going to the Statue of Liberty. I love eating a hot dog on the street. It's like if you came to San Francisco, I wouldn't tell you to walk across, you, you got to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge, you know, you got to take the tour mm-hmm. of Alcatraz. You gotta ride a cable car, right? These are the things that uh, that make our make our great cities. Like when I come to Dublin, I gotta I gotta what? 
I got a. You got to go to the Guinness storehouse, Brian. That mightn't even have been around in the in the time you lived here. I did. It certainly wasn't as glitzy as it is now. Yeah, that's true. You guys are blown up. The Celtic Tiger changed everything in the late nineties, but. I uh, I did tour the Guinness Brewery in Dublin when I had some friends come visit, but I, I get it. Yeah, I get it. It's not something you guys are going to do today. I get it. Uh, but yeah, so what I'm doing is, um, well, my you mentioned my on-air partner, Paulie Mack. He happens to be a guy who grew up in New Jersey, too. So this is p- sort of home for him. And he's uh, what's particularly interesting about him is his uh, obsession with New York pizza. Obsession. So we've been eating as much of that as possible. In fact, going down into like really hidden places like uh, Bleecker Street and uh, Greenwich Village to go to these special pizza joints. So we are uh, we're trying to hit the little hidden gems of the beautiful uh, the beautiful buzzy place that is New York City. How is Radio Robin, Brian? You told us last week that it's um, you've described it to us many times in the past. It's a bit of a a crazy area where... Audio sh- meat factory. Audio basically. meat factory. I think a lot of people <laughs> shooting their mouths off at one given time. These, uh, you know, American broadcasters all well able to speak up for themselves. How, is your, how have you fitted into that? I like that audio meat factory. It is... Um, so when I was a writer, right? So you guys know my past life as a sports writer. Yep. I covered a Super Bowl between the, four, uh, the Raiders and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in San Diego. And one of my assignments at the San Francisco Chronicle was to write a little what they called a postcard for the paper, a little, a little six-inch, a uh, little short, bright anecdote that gives a little flavor of the event that's different from the football or profiling a player. And, uh, and one of them I did uh, in, uh, in uh, San Diego was on Radio Row, which I had never really, you know, as a writer, okay, as a writer, you view yourself as this intellectually superior being who crafts thoughts uh, that are longer than, uh, you know, two seconds. And, you know, you just kind of look at these radio guys as, Gas bags and bloviators. Okay, and... easy, easy. <laughs> hey, boys, I'm one of you. Okay, so but I wrote this. I, what's really funny is I go back and look at this postcard that I wrote. I was like, oh my god, Radio Row. If you ever need to like delve into the lowest realm of American society, come to Radio Row. If you ever want to feel bad about the direction of this country, come to Radio Row. If you ever want to see empty thoughts bouncing off of walls, come to Radio Row. And now, boys, I'm living on Radio Row. I'm loving Radio Row. I am Radio Row. So it's kind of funny how things change. But yeah, I mean, now we're talking about, uh, so, uh, gosh, I, it's bigger than, I think this is the biggest one I've seen. So picture, picture a giant conference room, guys, like a huge conference room, like a giant ballroom, and really no empty table. Every table that seats about three hosts, you know, to a table with an engineer, and I mean, you are probably separated by about five feet from each table, and everybody's talking. I mean, I, guys, I, I haven't counted. There must be a hundred. There must be a hundred radio stations in here. Now, the biggest boys, you know, NFL Network, they have the front of the room and they have the big bright Klieg lights in the TV. Uh, ESPN, actually, ESPN is not in Radio Row, but NBC, CBS Sports Radio, and all that. But for example, like where we're sitting, like my chair bumps up against the guy from WEEI in Boston. And he's so he's like two inches behind me, and he's talking away. We look straight across about two feet away from KOA, which is a Denver station. Uh, to our right, we hear a guy constantly talking about Dallas, uh, the Dallas Mavericks. So I'm presuming he's from Dallas, Texas, uh, and it's just everywhere. And so what happens is these, you know, sometimes big name NFL celebrities, sometimes smaller name NFL celebrities, just are, are escorted around the room by their handlers. Always promoting something. These are, you know, these companies just seize on this opportunity to grab a name, uh, like, for example, an old P- Pittsburgh Steeler, Rocky Blyer, who won four Super Bowls. Interesting guy because he served in Vietnam in the U.S. Army. And you know, Rocky Blyer is not a guy you normally talk to, but you think, oh yeah, we'll have Rocky Blyer. But he's going to tell you about his work with the Wounded Warriors, one of the more noble ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Kramer, the famous Greenback, Green Bay Packers offensive lineman who threw the block in the ice bowl. That won the ice bowl. We've talked about the ice bowl. The Cowboys and the and the Packers at Lambeau Field, fifty below. He famously threw the box uh, and wrote a book called Instant Replay. Very interesting guy. But when you have him on, you got to make sure that he supports Blimpy's sandwiches. You know, Blimpy's <laughs> Subway sandwiches. So, uh, so it's like sometimes ridiculous sponsors, sometimes um, noble sponsors, like you know, helping wounded veterans and things like that. But uh, you get these guys that you normally wouldn't talk to. Daryl Strawberry, the great baseball star. While walking around Radio Row, he's opening a new substance abuse recovery center in Florida. He's a pastor now. So uh, he sits down. Well, hang on a second. Daryl Strawberry is a pastor. This guy, 
this guy was a party animal. And I read that book on the, the what team was he on in the eighties? The eighty six Mets. The eighty six Mets, who were all basically a bunch of assholes, Brian. That's the, that's what they came across. Said the bad guys won. I think might have been the name of that book. And Daryl Strawberry was chief chief among the assholes, <laughs> just partying away and being mean to everybody. He's a pastor these days. Boys, this is it, man. This is the the, the wheel of life that turns. The wheel the wheel is turning and won't slow down. Uh, Daryl Strawberry, indeed. One of the great um, abusers of, of uh, uh, one of the great, uh, bur- some would say, um, underachievers of his talent because of it. He, he, you know, he hit 350, 335 career home runs, which is a lot, but a lot of people think Daryl Strawberry is probably a Hall of Fame talent. He should have hit 500 home runs and been in the Hall of Fame, but yes, you are absolutely right. Uh, he was a major partier, and New York was a major part of that scene. Boys, look what happens. You get a little older, you find, uh, you find the Lord. He has he has found the Lord, and uh, he has now moved to a small town in Missouri. How about that? And uh, and he's opened it. Yeah, yeah. You want to go? You guys come to America. You don't want to do a touristy thing. Maybe go see Daryl Strawberry. Uh, you know, at his uh, <laughs> yeah. Go get a go get a, a sermon from Daryl Strawberry. Brian, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love the color, Brian. But I know our more nerdish American football fans will want to know about the actual game and uh, and the the chief storylines there. In terms of the build up to it, has anything much changed over the last week or so? We're obviously still. I mean, the the strengths and weaknesses of both teams kind of changed. So we're still talking about the best offense against the best defense in the Super Bowl. That's exactly right, and you're and what you just asked about the actual game itself is like the least important thing on Radio Row. You know what I mean? We're all, it's like what guests can you get, what what uh, business can you plug? So you asking about the game, I almost feel like is a foreign question this week. Uh, but Don't you yeah, want to hear about Blimpy's uh, Subway sandwiches? <laughs> By the way, they brought they brought us Blimpy Subway sandwiches okay. too. I was gnawing on one while we were talking. That's to why Jerry you keep plugging them on Irish radio. <laughs> I just like the name, actually, <laughs> Blimpy's. But um, the only real quote unquote news of the week, football wise, and it's not even football wise, is uh, the the famously reclusive Marshawn Lynch of the Seattle Seahawks. And the big question is, will will he talk to the media? Because uh, you know, there's a certain obligation these guys have in their contracts to talk to the media to be professional, and Marshawn Lynch has decided all year that it's just not that important to him, and people have sort of wondered about him, what makes him tick, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he finally has done a little bit of media. Guys, he's been fascinating because he's revealed himself to be one of the more laid-back, sort of uh, jazzy, cool, um, I would say Snoop Dogg-like personality in that he, in his economy of verbiage, He's become this fascinating guy. He finally talked to Deion Sanders at NFL Network, and Deion said to him, you don't like to talk much. Huh? You don't like to do this. And, 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 it, and a voice I could never replicate because it was just too silky smooth for, for my sad pipes. Marshawn Lynch said, nah, man. He said, I'm just about that action, boss. And uh, everybody went nuts because it, uh, it became an instant slogan in Seattle. I'm just about that action, Bob. <laughs> and uh, another time, Dion asked him, well, well, I mean, what's your motivation? You know, why, why won't you do this? And Deep Marchand said in his, again, very Snoop Doggish, laid-back way, he said, I just like to kick back, stay in my lane. And uh, everything, <laughs> wow, this guy's like dropping like life philosophies. Just kick back, stay in my lane. <laughs> I'm just about that action, boss. If you guys can get the audio, I would highly recommend it. It's uh, easily accessible out there on YouTube, the Deion Sanders, uh, Marshawn Lynch interview. And you guys will be mesmerized by Marshawn's uh, super cool uh, takes. So that's been kind of one of the storylines. Also, Richard Sherman, who uh, we've all spent an entire uh, you know, almost two-week fortnight uh, blow, uh, talking about what Richard Sherman means to American society has brought his uh, his polite game to, to uh, New York City. He's been uh, upbeat. He's been open. He's been ch- conversant. He's been expansive. The Stanford Richard Sherman, the uh, the guy who everybody says is a great student and a great scholar, he's been the guy on display. I would also say that just based on energy, it seems like the Broncos aren't even here. It just seems like Seattle is far more the compelling team because of Richard Sherman, because of Marshawn Lynch's cool act, and because their coach Pete Carroll is this uh, guy whose uh, enthusiasm seems to kind of capture the media, uh, the way he plays uh, reggae music at his practices or does yoga with the team and all these kind of West Coast things that Pete Carroll brings to the table. So one of the things I keep wondering is, are the Broncos even here? So uh, I'd say Seattle's winning the media week. The favorites, though, according to the bookies, are not Seattle. They're the Denver Broncos. And this surprises me slightly, Brian, because in American football of all sports, I would have thought that 
you would generally pick if you had to choose between two teams playing against each other, you'd, te- you'd pick the defensive guys. You'd pick the team who can shut the other one down as opposed to the more flamboyant, attacking, offensive team. You're absolutely right, and, uh, and I'm with you, and a lot of people are with you. Um, sometimes point spreads are, are odd things. They, sometimes point spreads are sort of more directed as to where, where Vegas can get the most money. Uh, they kind of set the line that attracts the most bets, and I think, I guess, and maybe it's just not doesn't have to be in our listening audience because we're so in San Francisco, we're so uh, obsessed with Seattle, having played them three times this year. Um, we understand how good Seattle is, but maybe the rest of the country, when it comes to the betting public, hasn't really paid attention to that team cooped up there in the far corner of the country. And, and the other option being Peyton Manning, the most, you know, arguably the most famous guy in the NFL, and you know the guy, sportsman of the year for Sports Illustrated, you know the guy who threw 55 touchdown passes this year to set an all-time record. So I think that's what tilts kind of that betting money that way is that Seattle is a bit of an unknown to some of the more casual fans, whereas Peyton Manning is viewed as this guy in total command of his game, and that oh well, you know, if I had to pick, maybe Peyton. This is Peyton's year. Peyton's sort of the darling. Peyton's going to ride off on the white horse. Peyton, Peyton, Peyton. So I think that's what tilts that. But I'm with you. I think Seattle's going to win the game, and I think Seattle should be favored because I, I take defense over offense. We, had a, um, we have this guy we have on occasionally. He runs uh, this thing called predictionmachine.com. We sort of enjoy his takes. He's this uh, super nerd data analyst guy, and he runs the games 50,000 times with all sorts of um, analysis into his computer. It's just kind of a fun guest to have, an offbeat guest to have. And, and he's not, he, in the last 10 Super Bowls, he's 9-1 and one, uh, straight up on the spread. And his prediction machine has Seattle winning the game 24-20. to 20. So uh, we, 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 we've heard from the mighty computer, and we've heard from you and me. So, yeah, I'd take Seattle. Brian, you're not tempted to hang around there. You say you're going back to San Fran. You wouldn't stick around and maybe pay 20 grand for a ticket? <laughs> to go sit out there and freeze too. It's like, oh my god, these people. It's like, first of all, the Super Bowl. I've talked to you guys about that. It's a very neutral, sort of corporate feeling place. You know, it's like Super Bowls are weird. You sort of feel like you visited a different planet. There's all these, um, just all these. I, you know, guys from I don't know, uh, uh, Ford or Chevy or uh, IBM or Apple or whatever. You know, it's not the it's not the Seattle fan base that dominates a Super Bowl that makes everything so colorful. So they, these people are going to pay above and beyond for the ticket, you know, into the thousands, to freeze outside. No my, guy, no, my friends, how about I go back to the West Coast, the best coast, how about I turn on my HDTV, how about I wear my sweatpants at home, eat my nachos at home, and just call that a win. How's yeah, that? and eat your blimpy sub as well, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully done, boys. Enjoy yeah. the Super Bowl. Great to talk to you. Thank you. All the best, guys. Talk next time. Saturday, February 1st is Change Your Bank Day. It's a time to ask yourself whether you are really happy with your bank. A time to ask, am I paying too much for my current account? Can I get a better rate on my savings or my mortgage? Saturday, February 1st is Change Your Bank Day at KBC. An entire day dedicated to making changing bank easy. So if you'd like to chat through your options, pop in for a coffee at any KBC hub in Dublin, Cork, Limerick and Galway and change to a bank that's all about you. We're open all day, so call us on 1-800-515253 or pop into any KBC hub or visit changeyourbank.ie. KBC, the bank of you. Terms and conditions apply. KBC Bank Ireland PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Hair dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by various blasts of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. He threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. In the, is that right? No, 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 no. Are you usually when Brian puts us onto an audio clip? as he's just done, yeah. that could work for the show. We source it straight away, we play it, it's always good, he never lets us down, but there's no way that the real Marshawn Lynch can sound any better than Brian doing an impression of Marshawn yeah, Lynch we don't want to ruin slash it. Snoop Dogg. That was just incredible <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, I just want to stay in my lane. I, also, I, I liked it. I also am very impressed by the fact that even when I try to turn it on, and I do apologise to the more knowledgeable American football fans, when I try to turn it on to the game, Brian said, oh yeah, that sounds great. No interest in talking about the game. Yeah, so, I mean... Let's, yeah. Just, let's just talk about the celebs I'm spotting around here and the... Subs I'm eating. I think that's probably that's probably. Right. I mean, if if you're really stuck, we did talk about the two championship games last week, so you can go and download last Thursday's show, and you'll get plenty there. Don't forget Roanoke Hour coming up a little bit later on. But right now, Jerry Eisenberg, 14-time Pulitzer-nominated writer for his work with the New Jersey Star Ledger, columnist emeritus now 
with that paper. And he's also working on a book about Pete Rizal, who was NFL commissioner for nearly 30 years from the 60s, from 1960 through the end of the 1980s. But we're talking today about the most famous coach in NFL history. Jerry, first of all, great to talk to you. It has been a little while. How are you keeping? Yeah, well, I, I had a little operation, but I will be fine. Remember when they cut the uh, title fights from 15 to 12 rounds? Yeah. Well, my old man didn't raise no 12-round fighter. <laughs> so cool. I will be at the Super Bowl, and I dare anybody to stop me. Well, you've been at the previous 47, I'm right Correct. in saying. So this is not a day that you're that you're planning to miss anytime soon. No, there are no only, and actually, uh, there are only three of us left. And I understand one of us is not coming, so that'll put us down to two as far as uh, columnists that cover every Super Bowl. This one is on your home patch in New Jersey. Does that yeah, make it? I live in Nevada now, but you, you know, you can you can take the boy out of New Jersey, <laughs> but you can't take New Jersey out of the boy. Tell us, the man we wanted to speak to you about today is uh, long gone, unfortunately, uh, passed away in the in the early nineteen in nineteen seventy, I think it was. Vince Lombardi. The players will be playing for the Lombardi Trophy yes. again this coming weekend. He was. Maybe a disciplinarian is the word that gets thrown around a lot. Was he a bit of a hard-ass? Oh, he was a man for all seasons. He was a good friend of mine, but he was a man for all seasons. But he had, I, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories here. That were, He was a hard-ass. Yes, he was. He was tough. I felt Vince was maybe one of the greatest. You know, when a guy's great, the eras are different. The games played differently. But he could have been the greatest weekday coach, in other words, practice, planning, all that sort of stuff. And then the game would start, and I thought he was a mediocre game coach. I mean, he'd run around excited and everything, and he had an assistant named Phil Bankston who really was key to him. Then at halftime again, when he when it went wrong, he became the greatest coach again with the diagrams and the yelling and the pointing. And I mean, Lombardi was a master psychologist. He knew who to kick and he knew who to pat. Um, he was a very emotional guy. I often found him worse uh, to interview when they won than when they lost because he was still in the game. The last game of the schedule, they're playing the Rams, and then they're playing the Rams in the playoffs to get to clinch the first place. That's going to be the following week. So they win the game 7-3, touchdown to a field goal. Vincent comes in the locker room. He blows a chair at the wall. He's screaming at them. You guys play like that, you'll get killed next week. You, he said, you know what? You don't play Packer football, and I don't want anybody on this team who doesn't play Packer football. Now, Willie Davis is in the, in the locker room for, for your uh, listeners. They don't really have lockers. They have these little stalls that they change in. And, uh, so Willie Davis is on a wooden stool in his stall, and he's trying to move himself into the wall to put his mockery and he's saying to the heavens he's saying god please don't let vincent see me please and he's leaning further back with each tirade and vincent said i'll get rid of all of you who wants to play pack of football stand up at that point the stool breaks willie davis falls face first on the floor jumps up and party says you see willie davis wants to play pack of football <laughs> He was a guy who, with this rough, tough exterior, had a marshmallow heart inside and knew when to empathize and when to sympathize and when to take action to help somebody. Willie Davis was one of the first black players on a team. Good guy. They used to sit and talk. Lombardi would tell the story about how he didn't get a head coaching job because his parents were Italian, and he understood Willie's problems with being black and, and the way coaches and people thought about blacks. So Willie comes to him one day and he says, Coach, um, I got a mispractice here, another black player, I forget who it was. Got a mispractice uh, tomorrow. He said, What do you mean you got a mispractice tomorrow? We got a game study. What are you crazy? He said, No, 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 no. I have to go to Milwaukee. Why do you have to go to Milwaukee? I have to get my hair cut. What do you mean you have to get your hair cut? He said, We got barbers here. He said, Yeah, but they won't cut my hair. Lombardi says, You'll be in my office right after the game. I have to practice. So they practice, he gets changed, shower and everything. And Lombardi says, come with me. He drives to the barbershop that he goes to. They come in and they goes, hey, coach, how you doing? What do you have, a light trim again? He said, no, cut his hair. And after that, the two black players got their hair cut whenever they needed it in that barbershop. 
how was your relationship with him? Was it? Would you talk football mostly? Would you talk sports, or would you talk everything oh, but sports? Everything. We talked everything, but we fought. I mean, he appreciated a good fight, and I'm not going to let any coach push me around. So uh, it, you know, he would, we would have arguments, and it would be it was weird. I mean, when he would he would continue them on the phone uh, when I after I went home, and. He would pick up where he left off, and, he, and he, when he called, it wasn't this is Prince This is he just go into it. Give you an example. Uh, they're playing the Colts, and they were then in Baltimore, and were then their big rival for about three or four years. Well, they got the quarterbacks hurt, the running backs hurt, the fullbacks hurt, and damned if he doesn't win that game with three substitutes playing the those key positions. Comes in the locker room. And the guys, the local guys, were afraid of him because he would yell at them and scream at them. And he had, for some reason, he had more respect for the guys who were in the New York area. He knew us first of all before he even got out there. And I don't know what it was, but I we had a had a cord that was responsive. So they're looking at him. What's the first question? You know, they don't know what to do. So I said, hey, Coach, did you ever think you could win a game with those three guys playing? He looks at me and he says, that's a stupid question, mister. He called everybody mister. And I said, well, you know what? I thought you coached a stupid game. Now, everybody inhales. You can feel the walls of the locker room coming in, right? And he's got the fire in his eyes. He said, what do you know about football? Not a damn thing. I said, what do you know about newspaper men? Not a damn thing. So he said, well, I ask you a question. Okay. So... I do, because I, I did it because I had to catch a plane. So I go home, and, and he's very busy on Monday. Anyway, Tuesday, the phone rings. I pick up the phone, and his voice says to me, I might have gone too far, but you were way out of line with that question. <laughs> See, I wrote a book called The Rivals many years ago, many, not decades and decades ago. And it was about, about sports rivalries, but it wasn't about the, the simple stuff like you might find, for example, in Ireland, one county against another at Hurling or something. It was, these were rivalries that people shot each other over, athletic rivalries. I mean, they were, you know, they just had a m- tremendous emotional impact on America. One of them was between the old New York baseball team, the, the Giants, who moved to the coast, and the Brooklyn Dodgers, who moved to the coast. Vincent grew up in Brooklyn, and he was very much into baseball, and he was a Dodger fan. So he read that chapter, because he read the book, and he calls me up, and he says, Jerry, I had to call you. You have written a great book. I said, Vincent not a great book. It's a good book. He says, Jerry, it's a great book. I'm saying, no, it's a good book. Now, he's, he's defending my book and I'm attacking it, right? Yeah. And he says to me, because first of all, my idea is you've got to win an argument with this guy. So he says to me, don't try to tell me it's a great, not a great book. I read it. I said, don't try to tell me it's not a good book. I wrote it. <laughs> and there's a pause and he says, well, I guess you got a point. I guess no man, no human being can connect with players simply by by discipline alone and without having that that ability to connect. Is that something that you saw behind the scenes? Did you see him as a family man? Did you see? Oh, yeah. You said he was I a friend. He was he... a family man, but his 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 competitiveness spilled over to the family. Really? He's playing marbles on the floor with uh, I don't know six seven year old Vincent the third, and he starts the kid starts to cry. And Marie leans over and says, what's the matter, Vinny? What's the matter? She's sitting on the couch. He says, Papa's winning all my marbles. And she leans over the other way and says, Vincent, for Christ's sake, let him win. And he looks at her and he said, the world's not like that, Marie. <laughs> he sounds like an unbelievable character, Jerry. Could I ask you, if Vince Lombardi was still around this week, would he be rooting for the free-scoring Peyton Manning, Denver Broncos in this Super Bowl, or would he go for the tigerish, almost vicious defense of the Seahawks? I'll tell you what he would be rooting for. He'd be rooting for all 35 mile an hour winds and heavy snow. <laughs> and he would say, he would say, when I tell you nuts, he would. I'm sure he would say to me, "That's how you test people." Jerry, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you, and we look out for the book as well called Roselle. When, when is that going to be coming out? That's coming out in September, and I'll bother you with that. But listen, it's always a joy to talk to you guys, and I wish, really, I wish one day we could have a show about an American's view of virus, of, of, of hurling, because I got a lot of thoughts about that, and uh, 
Uh, I met a lot of wonderful people through that. And if I may, I'll give you a postscript about hurling. I had to go see the first time. There was a guy, what was his name? Christy Ring, was that his name? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, he came to the to New York to play, and I was low man on a totem pole, and they said, you're going to go cover hurling. And I thought it was that thing on the ice, you know, with the little with the discs that they roll. The curling, curling, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't know anything. So I, I went to see the head of the Gaelic Athletic Association there. And, uh, well, first I went to see John Byrne, who, who was the sports editor of the Irish Echo. And John Byrne said, he had that accent, and he said to me, listen, he said, in 1800 and whatever it was, um, the British didn't want us playing hurley because we drilled with hurley sticks uh, to simulate rifles. And uh, they banned it, and we're still playing it so they can go screw themselves. So I said, well, who do I speak to? He said, go see this guy, Downey, on the bar, Downey's Bar on 8th Avenue, the Irish Bar. And I walk in there, a wonderful man. And he says to me, uh, let me tell you something. Uh, I said, you know, I noticed a lot of guys, you're cheating. A lot of these guys in your league fly in from Dublin and other places, spend the weekend, go to the, play the game, go to the dance, and go back and play for their county team here. He said, we got to do that because... Now they're Americanized, and all the kids want to go up and play for Bishop Tower Memorial High School. They don't care about hurling. So I said, well, what makes it so much a better game? I had to, I'd get to see a match at that point. He said, I'll tell you what makes it so much better. He said, I go to Yankee Stadium, and if somebody hits a very high ball, and Mickey Mantle toes over it, puts his hands up, he catches the ball, and everybody cheers, and nobody lays a freaking finger on him. <laughs> Jerry, it's been brilliant talking to you. Uh, enjoy super, your 48th Super Bowl. We really hope you do. Yeah, well, listen, I, I enjoy being alive to get to it. I'm 83 now, so can I tell you? Nice talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Wonderful to talk to Jerry. And I don't think we were disappointed in the stories that we wanted to hear. I was not expecting Christy Ring to figure, I've got to be honest. I did not know the great Christy was going to play a part in our Super Bowl or Vince Lombardi chat. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what happens when you talk to Jerry Eisenberg. I love the relationship he had with Vince Lombardi at press conferences. Have you ever done this game? Have you ever confronted people like this? What do you know about football? Not a damn thing, says Lombardi to Eisenberg. Mm-hmm. What do you know about newspaper men? Not a damn thing, shoots Eisenberg back. Yeah, but I don't care about newspapers at all, <laughs> says Lombardi. <laughs> well, except he calls him up two days later and without even introducing himself on the phone, continues the rant. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Those were the days. The competitiveness. You could really have a relationship with the sports managers, probably. The, the relationship with, the, not so much the relationship with his grandson, but the story mm. that uh, was told there by Jerry Eisenberg about Vince Lombardi playing marbles with his grandson, Vincent the Third, and not allowing him to win because the world's not like that, Marie. <laughs> you know, grandparents are in a privileged position, you know. They don't have to discipline their grandchildren, they, when they mind them, all they have to do is shower them with love and gifts. And allow them to win. And then, you know, when they start getting cranky, hand them back to their parents. So I think Vince has missed the... I mean, <laughs> if it's his own son, fine. But with grandsons... You, you don't, don't want your grandson to start hating you. There's no excuse well, for that. I mean, I think uh, that's a lot of... I mean, my, I remember my granddad thrashing me with a cane. Did he? He certainly did. Oh, Ken. I broke a window in his greenhouse. Yeah. So he th- he ran around the garden chasing me with a bamboo cane, thrashing my what? <laughs> thrashing my legs. Yeah, oh my mother wasn't happy about that. You know. But <laughs> you know the, po- was the it, point was, was, was it your mother's? Grand- it was my mother's father. Oh, the, well, the, yeah. the point is that you know he just simply because he was a grandfather that didn't mean that he should stand by and and watch me turn into some kind of a hooligan. Yeah, I'd done wrong, and you know in the in the time and place where he grew up. That meant corporal punishment. <laughs> corporal punishment had, uh, was in order. I have uh, I have three nephews, you know, and I've never seen anyone getting played quite like my mother got played over the Christmas period. Yeah. Because you know, grand, grand uh, grandsons and their grandparents. I yeah. mean, they can get, they get away with literally just not in Ken Erdy's case. Got away very little by the no. sense of things. Well, like, I mean, whoosh. sorry, Ken. We're a couple of days out from the start of the Six Nations, so who better to talk to than the man who has scored more points in the competition than any other in its history? Ron O'Gara was in Dublin today, and I met up with him a little earlier on. Ron, it's great to talk to you again. Hope you're keeping well, first of all. Yeah, thanks, Owen. I'm very well. Very well, thank you. We saw you over Christmas on RTE. A lot of people, a lot of reaction to the documentary. It was pretty clear to me that the stars of the show were your young kids. Were they happy looking back at it? 
Um, would you believe they haven't seen it? I don't think. I think um, they were gone to bed in Paris because it was an hour later. And um, as a kid, there are far more important things in their lives. So I think they are a bit used to daddy on TV, but daddy's a coach you now. So um, they're still into watching Monster and watching Racing. So it's uh, it's um, very, very busy, yeah. But um, documentary, yeah, was... Um, it was great, the reaction, yeah, I'm very pleased with that, obviously. Did you watch it back yourself? I did, I did, I watched it in, um, in Paris live, yeah, and um, it's very difficult to comment on something that you're the subject topic of, you know, and um, I was obviously nervous because it was, you know, the whole idea of doing it is a little bit strange, and when you're the subject of the documentary I suppose the, the one great thing I learned about it is that your ability to recall a moment straight after a match is so superior to even 24 hours, 48 hours later I think when you have emotion in anything I think that's when what top sport is all about and there was times on reviewing it going did I say that <laughs> and where was my headspace at that time you know but I think the camera doesn't lie and that was the great thing about it and um, it was a good story in the fact that it was me probably hanging on to whatever I could at, at the latter stages of my career but um, I was happy with it. You said at one point, uh, it was towards the end of the way it was edited, that you look at the wrestling games, you're coaching the wrestling matches and you sometimes think you can go out there and still give it 10 minutes on the pitch if you were given maybe three weeks in Ireland camp from now until the England game could you come off the bench for Ireland no I couldn't no, at that level I'm sure for a one-off game you could you know what I mean if, you, if, I, if I gave myself a month's training to get you know what I mean fitness and strength and power back a bit but that's over that was me probably if you remember a lot of that work camera work was done months in advance of it being released so I was still probably in the honeymoon period of of realizing that rugby was over, and now I've accepted it. I've moved on. It's it's a different challenge now. The challenge for me is trying to become a coach and trying to get the best out of players at, at whatever level it is. But um, no, I think you know. I suppose my that comment was in relation to um, just how much you enjoyed rugby and the level in in racing. I think you'd feel like you could do a job but you could do a job for one game but where does that lead to I've been absolutely delighted the way rugby went for me it's given me everything I'm very grateful for it as I said on numerous occasions but it comes to an end for everyone and and I'm delighted with what I've done and uh, I wouldn't change anything but you go move on you told us when we chatted to you on TV last year that you went into the coaching job admitting that you knew nothing about it, it was a new world for you. We're chatting now, just coming into February. Have you learned a lot? Yeah, a huge amount, yeah. It's, it's um, very, very different. And, and every day you're learning something, and it's, it's, it's fascinating, I suppose, the difference in how you see the game, and I suppose the amount of na- analysis you do as a coach as opposed to as a player. And, um, you know, as a player, I was... I'm very conscious of paralysis by analysis and uh, I'm glad I didn't do more probably as a player but then the other side of me was you know the scoring zones at different periods in games and what's more frequent compared to other um, times time slots it's just uh, it's very interesting I suppose when you don't have to perform on the pitch how you can operate off the pitch Bernard Jackman told us recently that he gets slagged off by the players at Grenoble for the amount of technical detail he goes into from from very early on in the week. He's just straight in there and they're just relax, you know, we'll we'll get there, we'll get to the pitch of it. Have have you noticed that kind of an attitude? Um, Yeah, I think we're very lucky in Ireland because of, you know, the, I suppose, the amount of quality imports from a playing point of view and then the level of coaching we'll see, our general knowledge would be very, very good our understanding from the technical side would be very good and that detail of coaching wouldn't be in France to the level it would be in the provincial systems and 
certainly not from what I hear in the level of the Joe Smith details. So, um, yeah, I think, and especially in Racing Metro, because there's so many new players and so many players and new coaches and new calls, I think what's improved in the last few weeks has been probably just shredding the game plan and concentrating and getting very good at one or two things as opposed to very average at eight or nine things. So as coaches, that's something we've improved on and we try to just have a very simple game plan and it was very good against Toulouse, obviously executed by very, very good players. Um, And that always helps, you know, because essentially, no matter what they say, it's all about the players. Have you had? Have you got to the point where you have much of an impact, an input, I should say, on that game plan? Johnny Sexton gave an interview to the Sunday Times the weekend, and he seemed a bit frustrated by the, I guess, by the way his game is curtailed to a certain extent. He feels that the team can do a little bit more, but he's a bit reluctant to speak up at the moment. You're a coach there, so you're maybe in a better position to do so, albeit a junior coach. Do can you and Johnny together kind of push things on? Yeah, that's most definitely the challenge. And in fairness to the two Laurents, they're open to it, but they have a lot on their plate in terms of results not going well. So you, by the nature, you seem to close up a little bit more when that happens. But those two haven't. And they've, for the last few weeks, there's been a big emphasis on how the so-called British players operate in their week because the French pl- players' week would be, um, it'd be very different to how we manage and an awful lot of video work on the opposition while this side of the world we would concentrate more on ourselves first and then the opposition so um, no it's been it's been fantastic I think in the fact that they're secure coaches and secure people generally share ideas and you know I'm responsible for all the defence and I've introduced a defensive system from here and I know people will laugh about me being the defensive coach but um I would have been a very good, I suppose, defensive organiser, but not a great defender, if you, if you notice the subtle difference. <laughs> and um, it's, uh, it's just, I think, you know what I mean, 80% of, of defence is attitude, but you have to have a system because you can't have the same mistakes every week. And unless you have a system, you have no rules. So you have to introduce that and introduce that detail. And I think most definitely people are probably shocked by that, but I'd be a massive believer in... in, in in applying the principle and A, understanding why you're doing it and B, how you can improve it. So I think that would be my coaching philosophy through everything. You just have to keep asking questions. Why are we doing this? It sounds great that you've got, you have had, had that impact. And yeah, it's massive. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I think it's been, it's been great. I've, I've got, as I said earlier, I think you just, uh, you know, it wasn't, at all what I anticipated seven months ago I intended probably finding my way and that would start off as a kicking coach but I'm on the crest of a wave now in terms of with the coaching team there's essentially the two lads are senior coaches and I'm a junior coach and uh, I have to do you know presentations on the Monday and Tuesday speak at half time speak before games and it's not that easy in in a foreign language you know but after a while, it, you, it becomes second nature to you, and you just got to do it. I mentioned Johnny Sexton there. He is in Ireland camp now. Do you think it will suit him being... It, it, we're probably back to a point, certainly for the time being, that he's an undisputed number one. The two of you were rivals for so long, and I'm sure you pushed each other on. In a way, do you think he'll be better suited to being the, the number one? Yeah, I think most definitely. I think every 10 needs that, especially for for a number of years, because, you know... Johnny, you know what I mean? It's the same as Sean O'Brien. Sean O'Brien has 30 caps. I don't know how many caps Johnny has, but these fellas seem like household names, but they actually haven't been around that long. And and he needs that um, sense of security now, I feel, at this stage, because there's been a lot of upheaval in his life, especially moving to Racing and an awful lot thrown at him there in terms of making the right call and all that. But that's a little bit harsh on Johnny, you know? I think he needs that, and I think... He was really good for racing against Toulouse and show what he can do. And Johnny understands the game better than 95% of people. And he has serious knowledge of the game. And I think he can be a great addition to whatever team. But I think his game, hopefully now throughout the Six Nations, will be on a par where he was for um, 
Leinster winning Heineken Cups because he was a very, very good player for them. But I don't. I think we've yet to see the best of Johnny in a green jersey, and I think that should be exciting for the whole of the country. People are. You've hinted at it there. People are worried over here just about emotionally and physically how he's going to be coming into the Ireland camp, given the amount of rugby that he's played and how up and down the team have been. Yeah, I can completely uh, understand that, and but I think irrespective of what's to happen between now and the end of the season racing the benefits for Johnny are going to be immense in terms of what he has done um, because he has you know completely taken himself out of the comfort zone of of Leinster it was a difficult move he made but uh, he has learned so much about himself as a person and I think that's that, that's crucial and that experience will be invaluable to him when he does decide to come back to Ireland if he does because he's been through a challenging time but adversity is is crucial and the more adversity you have the better player you can become if you take the right messages and I think he most definitely um, has had challenging times but if he and I know he will if he's persistent he'll get through it and he'll come through with flying colours Ronan, you're the leading point scorer in the Six Nations. The cliche is that you sit back after your career is finished and then you start thinking about these things and looking back on the highs and the lows. You've been so busy getting straight over into a new life. Have you had a chance to rewind some of the videos and look at some of the, the drop no, goals? No, I don't. No, no. Obviously, it was, I must say, it was nice watching the documentary and that's the little pat in the back that you know at times because I'd be wondering what I'm doing racing Metro at times too and that's only natural you know as in there's probably easier things to be doing in life you know but I like rugby a lot rugby's given me massive returns so it's great probably for people on the outside to understand the opportunity I do have in racing you know I'm not a kicking coach I've probably got a massive opportunity in terms of you know I think I have input into everything tactically as well but it's it's hard, I think, because the two Laurens are, are the two bosses, but I'll always challenge them. And I think it is working behind, but it'll be slowly because, you know, it takes a while to chip away and then something to, you get the benefit of, of them. Maybe, yeah, this fella has a point here, you know what I mean? And I'm learning too, exactly. But I just think, um, no, it's I haven't, uh, you know what I mean? I don't, I, I, I loved the dressing room I loved the crack with the lads I loved uh, just the team environment mm. and uh, but it's it's gone next challenge move on the dynamic you talk about there just to go back to that is fascinating really because I suppose you have these ideas you want to get across but we're talking about human relationships as well you have to learn what makes these two guys tick and how to communicate with them yeah exactly on yeah you're that that is exactly it, but and that's a huge underappreciated skill in sport. I think players playing for each other because you know what I mean. The, the unity of fifteen fellas playing for each other, and I know exactly what it is that like because you know for the Munster team and the Irish teams that was the case over ninety percent of the time, and that's powerful. And you can get such a return out of players when when you know what buttons to push. But the flip side of that is if you push the wrong button, it's destructive and. Um, that's something that interests me hugely I think obviously I, I would be interested in the psychology of sport um, as well but I think I suppose in layman's terms just how you make players feel how you make players um, feel good about themselves and that's crucial because if they're happy A going on to the pitch and B during the game I think you're going to get a better, better um, response out of them are you feeling good about Ireland's chances? Yeah, I am, I am, I am. I think, uh, um, you know, I think Ireland's have all, well, you know, since to, since the, the inception of the Six Nations has been uh, very competitive and, you know, for years Ireland were winning, you know, minimum three games, four games in the championship. Then in 2009 we won a Grand Slam, but then it's been hugely inconsistent. But I think that's been Ireland underperforming as opposed to Ireland overperforming. So, I think there's going to be the the bounce factor with Joe Schmidt. I think the players are hungry. I think the Heineken bo- Cup box has been ticked more or less by a lot of the senior players and I think there really is something special building for Rugby World Cup. It sounds great because Alan Quinlan has been saying this week that 
Irish people can get a bit carried away before the Six Nations. He said he was in camp uh, in, from a media perspective last year and he got carried away along with that. Uh, so he's just urging people to be realistic. But you sound like there's no reason to think you can't go out and win the whole thing. Yeah, I genuinely don't, especially like with the first two fixtures, you know. I just think with the Six Nations, it's all about momentum. So if you beat Scotland and Wales, which, you know, I mean, we have to win our home games. That's the reality of it. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be beating these teams at home. So I think, you know, you're going to England for a triple crown and they will be tough because I think their pack are very good. I'm reservations about their back line but I think their pack would be very good but that's where the games are won mm. and then either way you either <clears throat> four out of four or get back on the horse against Italy and then you could be playing for everything instead of France and you know it's, it's it's ridiculous to even question where France will be by that stage you know they could be excellent or they could be in turmoil mm. Rona, just lastly, you're here promoting Viviscal Man Hair Growth Program. I can see plenty of product already. You're you're already dreading the question, but as a man with probably the greatest head of hair in Irish sport, could you give somebody such as myself a bit of advice, a bit more follically challenged, as you can see? Oh, jeez. I'm looking forward to the gift probe anyway during the week. <laughs> um, no, I think, to be honest, where I came into this whole um, setup was um, Kevin, who's the life's too good I think he works for an Irish brand and it's an Irish company he contacted me after he heard me doing an interview and he said is there any chance you'd uh, do a bit of work for us and endorse a product and I was like yeah yeah cool what is it and then he said oh, what's it got to do with um, uh, hair loss prevention <laughs> and I was like oh where's this going you know And uh, but it's basically it's it's a supplement for maintaining good hair as in my case I hope or else for the early stages if people feel like that they're losing their hair it's as simple as that you know what I mean he was uh, a very decent person running an Irish company and I was uh, I got on well with him and I said yeah of course you know so that's why I'm here so for me just apply liberally you would say jeez oh, no there's plenty to work with there don't give up listen <laughs> Ronan good advice and great to talk to you thanks so much cheers on thank you that was my chat with Ron O'Gara. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed it, Karen. Uh, yeah, he was very charitable there as well, wasn't he? At the end? I mean, there's plenty to work with. I mean, yeah. I'm sorry, but does he take me for a fool? It didn't come does across... Does Ron O'Gara take us all for fools? It didn't come across fully on Radio Ken, but I did try to lean down towards him, just put the head down so we could really see the, the ball. But funny, it became really apparent to me on the day that we interviewed Ron O'Gara on TV last year because we had and we for some reason persisted with this shot throughout the series this overhead shot at the start and I could see I never it was the first time in my life I'd seen the top of my head and I really yeah yeah, so I showed Ronan the top of my head there as I asked him that question and even then he was charitable just a nice guy yeah Yeah. I I suppose he was probably a bit embarrassed by the whole situation yeah I mean a balding man asking him for asking asking for sympathy (laughs) (laughs) I was asking for genuine any bit of advice I can have at this stage Ken yeah yeah. did you get any samples of the product I got a sample for myself Ken and and I got a few more samples for the rest of the team but seeing as everybody else has a good head of hair I think I'm just going to apply lash it all on me I might I might check out this Miracle Grow stuff (laughs) yeah no need to look my direction. I'm all right, Jack. Final lesson from Ronald Gar interview is next time a sports person tells you during their career that, oh no, it's it's not now that now is not the time to look back on the achievements. I'll do that once I've retired, I'll mm. put the feet up and have a look at the medals. They don't do that. They then move on to something else. Yeah. As Ronald So they're just never gonna do it. Maybe no, in their they do it all dotage. the time during their own career to remind themselves of how good they are so that they can keep up with this. Well, they tell us ridiculous they never do. charade that you know people would still be interested in watching them do what they do. We're going to wrap things up. I've really enjoyed today's show. I must say it's been one of my favourites. I hope everybody else enjoyed listening to it. We've had Jerry Eisenberg, US Murph, and Ron Nogara somehow all on the same show. I mean, you could sp- you could spread those. Maybe we should have spread them out further. Do we have anything set up for next week? Listen, we'll worry about that. We're going to be back on Monday. Tuesday's show is now switching to a Monday. I've mentioned this a few times in the last couple of days. So do do this now for a send. It'll be straight off the Super Bowl, indeed. Well, we will go to bed for a few hours after the Super Bowl, get in early Monday morning and put a show out for you. It has been quite a week. We're going to leave you with one of our guests from Tuesday's programme, Bernard Hopkins, the 49-year-old fighter. He's long enough in the tooth that he's had a number of nicknames now, formerly known as the Executioner, B-Hop. But he's got a new one now. Mm. You remind me of my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to 
get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I know a butt whooping was coming at the <laughs> I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. Jane 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 Tony is born. Iran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now. I'm an alien. Just Google it and get your own information. I'm an alien. You should be going. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.